what we're going to look at today is, is the question of balanced or lukewarm. We're going to look at how to read Ellen White. We're going to look at her, her own claims. Uh, what authority does, does she have in comparison with uh, um, like what is inspired, what is not inspired. And these kinds of questions I, I'd like us to look at. But, but let's have a word of prayer and then, then we'll, we'll start. Our Father in Heaven, we, we're thankful for the opportunity we have here to study your word and um, to learn more about uh, the spirit of prophecy, which we are to expect in, in the last days according to your word. And so please, Lord, help us to understand these things correctly. Help us to have a balanced view of uh, what your prophet has written so that we may uh, get that prospering that you've promised. This is my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Since we started on the plagiarism, uh, let's, let's go into that and then we'll <coughs> bounce back to the other one. I think we have time for both. To the second one, yeah. <laughs> I'm changing my mind here. Uh, plagiarism or literary borrowing. It says here, that at times in the Bible, the Bible prophets borrowed expressions, language, or phrases, or thoughts from other inspired or uninspired authors. That's a number, heading number four on the second uh, handout, which some of you might not have. So it says this, even though some of these authors were not inspired, the thought is inspired by the fact that the prophet under the guidance of God chose to use them. All truth belongs to God. The preacher says that there's nothing new under the sun and therefore originality is not a test of inspiration. And this is quite important. Hey. Den är nya. So sometimes people have been um, uh, upset about, uh, oh, for example, something that Ellen White wrote or something that another prophet has written, and they might say, oh, this is not original. They took it from somewhere else. Well, originality is not necessarily a test of a true prophet. And let's read Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 11. Someone would like to read it. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still thought the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words. And what was written was upright words of truth. The words of the wise are like jewels, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. Hmm. So you see here the preacher, that's Solomon in this case, he didn't actually write all the proverbs, but he sought them out. He searched for them, he found them, he put them in order, and, but still there were words of truth. They came from the same author, from, from the, the Lord. Even though he had to maybe take something that some other wise person had said, uh, by the fact that he chose it, we can, we can trust that it is an inspired quote. That the message in it is, is absolutely true. In Luke 1, verse 1 and 3, Luke says the same thing, that he, he listened to eyewitnesses and, and he actually took a lot of things probably from the other Gospels and put into his, his narrative. And that doesn't make it uninspired, of course. So without giving any credit to the, to, to the original author, that's also something very interesting. Solomon didn't say, so, thus says uh, Theophilus or whoever he took the quote from. Uh, so he didn't give any credit to it. Both Solomon and Luke used previously written proverbs and documents and presented them under their own name. There was nothing unethical or false in this, in this, since all truth belongs to God. And Ellen White was led to use previously written expressions and thoughts. And this is a quote from her son. It says, In her early experience, when she was sorely distressed over the difficulties of putting into human language the revelation of truths that had been imparted to her, she was reminded of the fact that all wisdom and knowledge comes from God. Incidentally, Ellen White had only four uh, years of education. So she, she was not 
a well-learned scholar in words, in that sense of the word. Uh, and she was feeling, was of course... Four, was it three? Was it? I think it was three. Yeah. Okay, maybe so. Because, uh, she was nine years old, at least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then she tried some more, some more. Yeah, she had her she had her nose cracked by a stone, and then she had to quit. So you can understand that she would feel frustrated here. Here she's going to write eternal truth, and how can she express herself in a very acceptable and good way? On the other hand, if you yourself are an interested scholar, then you you learn a lot by reading what others have written. So That's I true. think most of her writing could be her own good uh, English speech. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. She was a good speaker. She was very good. And, and that was very... I mean, she, she learned a lot. And, and uh, that's the thing. She, le she read other authors and, and uh, not, she didn't just take the quotes from there, but she, she learned the language very well. And she, so she was a... The scholars uh, they investigated their writings uh, yes. and they made conclusion that their writing is like a middle college level. Really? Wow. That's amazing. It says, anyway, here that uh, she, she was reminded that all of the fact that all wisdom and knowledge comes from God, and she was assured that God would bestow grace and guidance. She was told that in, in the reading of religious books and journals, she would find precious gems of truth expressed in acceptable language, and that she would be given help from heaven to recognize these and to separate them from the rubbish of error in which, with which they would sometimes find them, with which she would sometimes find them associated. So, this is quite interesting that she she read things and, and some critics, they say, oh, she took from this author and this author was a terrible heathen and, and did other things. Maybe they wrote something really good on health or something and, and she used a similar language. It was God helped her to pick out those things which, which were true and amid the rubbish of, of error. And there are different percentages that people put on how much she actually borrowed in this way. Uh, now, I put there from, from Herbert Douglas, Messenger of the Lord, there was one study that said, it was, it was not a comp an exhaustive study, but a random study, uh, that 31% of the sentences had at least one word from another author. So, of course, that's very loosely <laughs> described. Um, so, it's not a whole lot. It's not like she, she took lots of, lots of things. Um, just uh, one example of this. Mm, if I have that here. Have you ever read the quote from... Um, Ellen White's writings when she's when she talks about um, about the woman uh, about Eve being created from the rib of Adam. You know, uh, okay. I, I let, I let me read it from Patriarchs and Prophets. Eve was created from a rib taken from the side of Adam, signifying that she was not to control him as the head, nor to be trampled under his feet as inferior but to stand by his side as an equal, to be loved and protected by him. I think that's a beautiful quote. And Ellen White uses it in Patriarchs and Prophets. The thing is that Matthew Henry wrote it in the, in the, seven, in, in the 16th century. Also similar, of course. Here, here's from Matthew Henry's commentary. That the woman was made out of a rib, out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm, to be protected near to his heart, to be loved. Okay, so you see, it's a similar thing. And she probably uh, read that and, and thought that this is, wow, this is a very precious truth. And she took it, she, she made some changes in wording, and, and she presented it herself. Now some people say, oh, she's a plagiarist. She took it and she didn't say this was from Matthew Henry. Well, that wasn't the, the way they did it in the 19th century. Everyone did this way. They just took things out of, uh, without necessarily attributing, like, like we have in the scholar world today. You need to, uh, even the, the slightest little thing, you need to have a reference to. 
that wasn't the case. So times have changed very much. And actually, even in spite of this, people have made charge after charge after charge at Ellen White for being a plagiarist. So to settle the matter once and for all, the General Conference in the 80s, I believe, yeah, 81, uh, they, they hired an independent law firm with private money, which uh, specialized in patent and copyrights to investigate if Ellen White could be charged with plagiarism or if she had done anything unethical. So, you know, plagiarism, that's when I, when I, I study for a test and instead of writing the article, I copy from Wikipedia and I say that, oh, I wrote this. And then uh, that's plagiarism. That's what people say that Ellen White did. Uh, so they, they asked one of the, uh, a lawyer by the name of Vincent Ramick. And he was a Catholic. He had a Catholic background, Vincent Ramick. And uh, he investigated this for 300 hours. And at the beginning, he was, he was not favorable towards Adventists. He thought that actually she was guilty of plagiarism because he had read all the critics' books and, and so on. So he had that preconceived idea. But he said, okay, I'll go into this and I'll do a, a study on it. And afterwards, in the Adventist Review, interviewed him and uh, told him these things. I'm reading from D number one at uh, heading number four in the second handout. I should have put page numbers on this. This is what Vincent Ramick says. I gradually turned 180 degrees in the other direction. I found that the charges simply were not true. But I had to get that from her writings. I did not get that from, from either the people who said she was a plagiarist or the people who said she was not. It was reading her messages in her writings that changed my mind. I believe that the critics have missed the boat badly by focusing upon Mrs. White's writings instead of focusing upon the message in Mrs. White's, Mrs. White's writings. It's amazing. Mrs. White moved me, he says. In all candor, she moved me. I'm a Roman Catholic, but Catholic, Protestant, whatever, she moved me. And I, I think her writings should move anyone unless he is permanently biased and is unswayable. I think I know a little more about the real Vince Ramick than I did before I started reading her me the messages of Ellen White, not simply her writings. I think I'm a better person today than when I started this project. So this is what, what this uh, lawyer said. And he said, considering all factors necessary in reaching a just conclusion on this issue, it is submitted that the writings of Ellen G. White were conclusively unplagiaristic. That was his legal take on it. And he said, if I had been involved in such a legal case, I, I would much rather appear as defense counsel than for the prosecution. There is simply no case. So this, these charges of plagiarism have no foundation. And uh, independent sources have checked this legally. It is absolutely no problem. So if you've come across that, do not fear it one bit even. It's been tested. It's been proved that it's absolutely baloney. Uh, what about, yeah, I think let's, I won't go into these, the rest of the handout two. Let's go into handout three instead, because that's where I want to. You, you, but please, please do read the rest of it. It's, uh, it's a lot of references to contradictions in the Bible, and I pray that those things will help you to be established and to have a firm belief in the Bible and uh, also the spirit of prophecy. But let's turn to Revelation chapter 3 and we'll read the message of Laodicea. The, the message I want to focus on today, the title of this presentation is Balanced or Lukewarm. Balanced or Lukewarm. That's kind of a maybe a provocative uh, question, and that's what I intended. You know, lukewarm, that's what the church in Laodicea is accused of being. Uh, but, and many times, we want to be balanced also, right? Uh, so this is the question, how, how can we be balanced and at the same time not lukewarm? 
Let's read Revelation chapter 3 uh, from the beginning of that, of this handout. Uh, I can, l let me read this first. In the book of Revelation, Jesus gives a message to seven different churches. Even though they were literal churches in John's day, they were chosen by Jesus because they represent the whole church of history from John's day until the second coming. And the last church is Laodicea. So, we don't have time to prove that really from Revelation. But if you go to a Revelation seminar, I'm sure you will find out about that. That actually, the seven churches in Revelation represent church history from the time of John up until the last days. And we live in the last days, I believe, with all of my heart. And the last church is Laodicea. That means that the message is especially for us. So let's read it. Someone can read it. And to the angel of the church and the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so that because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are rich and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. <clears throat> to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Hmm. Amen. This is quite, this is, this is quite a, a harsh rebuke in one way to this church. There's no commendation. There's only rebuke, actually. Uh, Jesus tells the church that they are lukewarm. And how does he feel about that? Is that a good or thing? He doesn't like it. He says, I wish you were even cold or that you were hot, uh, but not lukewarm. Right in the middle. Now, how does Jesus feel about the church? What are his feelings towards the church? Does he hate the church? No, he still loves it. He loves it. Doesn't he say that all, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. The only reason Jesus gives reproof is because he loves us. Well, that's that's quite hard. Sometimes we hear we have people that come to us and and they give us reproof because they don't like us. You know, I'm so upset with you. Why did you do that? And and uh, I don't want to see you really. But they give us rebuke in that way. That's not the God we serve. He doesn't do it that way. The only reason God tells us to change something is because He loves us, because He wants He wants us to have a a greater joy, a greater experience in our life. And you know, sin destroys joy. It does. And, uh, and that's why Jesus says, don't, don't go and, uh, and uh, be part of that. He loves Laodicea, and that's why he gives this message. What does it mean, though, to be lukewarm? What would you say? You're content with where you are. Mm-hmm. You're not really on fire, and you're not really out in the world. So you're kind of just stuck in, in between, maybe you have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You have you have the form of godliness, as Second Timothy three five says. You have the form of godliness, but you deny the power thereof. You, you, you come to church, that's a tradition, right? We come to church, we, we do those, those uh, ceremonies, but the heart is not really in it. The heart is not really there. We're not really um, serving God with all of our mind and all of our hearts. 
it is it is something that's just a shallow yeah we dress up nicely for people and and, and pretend to be christians and spiritual you know this is the laodicea's problem they do not have a full entire surrender to god maybe they're caught up in the latest tv shows the latest uh, sports the latest uh, they want to, to get a job good job you know some of these things might not necessarily be bad it's good to have a job right but that's what's absorbing their attention how can I get money you know and how, how can I uh, what should I do who, who, who should I marry right oh I, I need to find someone to marry and that's that's their main thrust in life instead of having putting Jesus first in their life and because he's promised that all those other things will work out, hasn't he? So we really don't have any, anything to worry about if we put Jesus first. But it's, it's, a, it's, it's hard to trust, isn't it? I know, maybe I'll share this, of my experience. Uh, some years ago, six years ago, or something, I, the Lord spoke to me somehow in my mind. I, I can't explain it, how, how he did it. But he, he asked me this question, because it was so clear in my mind. Uh, Jonathan, if, if, if I saw that it was for your best happiness, that you would not be married, that you would be most happy if you were not married, would you trust me? <laughs> that was a hard question. <laughs> I was like, my Lord, <laughs> of course, you want me to be married, right? I, I, I want to be married. But the Lord pressed me with this, and he was saying, but do you trust me? If I would say that you would be happier with living a single life, would you trust me in that? And that was so hard. I, I, I wept. <laughs> this was actually before. Um, or I had met her, it was, it was, but I had not, we had not started dating at that moment. But uh, I was, I, I told the Lord, it was really hard, and I was like, crying and I was thinking no Lord oh, is that really what it takes but then I said well of course God you want you want the best for me and, and I know you love me and I know you want me to have the greatest joy in the world and so I made the surrender and I said God okay even if it is so that I have to live a single life I will do it and you know the moment I said that I was so relieved from this pressure you know that people say, oh, aren't you getting, going to start having, you haven't even had a girlfriend. Whoa, what are you? All of that just disappeared. And I said, I, I'm going to live for God. I'm going to do what God wants me to do in my life. And I don't care what happens. If he wants me to get married, he'll make me get married. And, and praise the Lord, he did. <laughs> he made me, he led me into, uh, led me to find a, a most wonderful woman that I'm married to right now. And but I, I was I was open to the Lord's leading, however He wanted to lead, and I think that's that's the key that we need to have. I needed to make that decision many times, not just once. But uh, still, this is the thing: we need to have full surrender to God and just say, "Lord, you can do whatever you want to in my life. I want to live not for myself, not for my own selfish interest, because then I'll be miserable and depressed. But I want to live for you entirely." So, I believe this is the problem of. Uh, of Laodicea and uh, Jesus the, the problem with Laodicea is also that they don't feel a need for reformation they they feel what do they say I'm rich I'm, I'm rich I have become wealthy and need nothing right and I don't think it's necessarily money it's talking about it's talking about uh, spiritual wealth Oh, I don't need to ch do any changes in my life. I'm good. As long as I'm better than that person, I'm all right. Isn't it? Okay, as long as I, as I do a little better than that person, and I'm sure that person will be saved, but, so as long as I'm a little bit ahead of that one, then I'm, I'm all right. Well, we only have one example, don't we? One person we can compare our lives to, and that is Jesus. And uh, Laodicea, doesn't feel the need for it. They say, I'm, I'm all right. I'm okay. I don't need any changes. And it's a very dangerous self-deception. Jesus tries to warn uh, Laodicea with, with strong language. And you know, as, uh, as Pastor Page told on the Sabbath, you know, the, the pig story. 
the, the, the man or the woman that was shouting pig, the man, and he was so upset about it, then he went around the corner and drove into the pig. Uh, it was a warning, but he thought it was an, uh, uh, um, what do you call it? Insult. An insult, that's right. Isn't that the way we take rebuke sometimes? But remember, God loves Laodicea. That's why he gives this message. So if it hurts, it's only because it's going to take away something bad from us. Just like a, a surgeon, you know. A surgeon cuts to heal, whereas a butcher cuts to kill. But both do cut. But God is not a butcher. He's a, he's a surgeon. He wants to take away those bad things in our life so that we can have an even better life afterwards. Many people, they say, no, they don't want Jesus to meddle in their habits of uh, eating or dressing or spending or dating or whatever. No, don't, 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 don't meddle with those things. You can be in church, Lord, and I can, I can come and, and once every, seven, every seventh day, I, I'll come and I'll be with you, Jesus, and then I'll go and do my own things. This is the problem. And Jesus represents himself as the true and faithful witness. He says that he knows their works. He knows our works. We might think that we can hide our works from each other, and we can, maybe. But uh, what happens when no one is looking? What happens when, when people are, are not listening? The Lord sees everything. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows everything about us. He knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. He loves us, and He wants us so to open the door, right? That's what He's doing. He's knocking. Why is He knocking? Is He not strong enough to go in? Doesn't He have all power in heaven and earth? <laughs> he gives us the freedom of option. He says, what does He say? He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Yeah, it's, it's amazing what this, what this can do. Jesus doesn't force himself on us, but he, he invites us. And we need to make that decision. Lord, you can come in to every part of my heart, every part of my life. Come in and be there. Now, how does, how does Jesus speak to Laodicea? It says that he comes as... The faithful and true witness. Now, what is a witness? If a witness tells, speaks, what would we call that? We'd call it a testimony, wouldn't we? If someone is witnessing, they're telling their testimony, isn't it? This is Jesus' testimony. The testimony of Jesus. Now, we've studied what the testimony of Jesus is in Revelation, haven't we? And it is actually that which characterized the last day church. And in, according to Revelation 19.10, it is, it is the spirit of prophecy. It is this prophetic gift. And could it be that it is actually through the spirit of prophecy that Jesus gives the rebuke to Laodicea in our days? I believe so. I, I, I read from... Uh, Second page of, a, of the third handout. If we have been convinced that Ellen White is the prophet that Jesus has sent to his people in the last days, that's what we looked at in the first presentation. Where are you reading? Here. An E. This must, must then mean that her writings are the message of Jesus to Laodicea. Ellen White wrote nine volumes of something called Testimonies to the Church. Okay, It's not Testimonies against the Church. Sometimes we, we feel that way, don't we? Right? Okay, oh, it's against me. So he's like insulting me and the, with those things. If some of you have, re have read it. Well, it is for the Church. It is to the Church. It is for, for the upbuilding of the Church. It says the message in these books are for the most part direct and practical exhortations concerning everything from salvation, theology, health, entertainment and finances, to evangelism, family life, education and church life, etc. And this, I believe, is what Laodicea needs to hear. These messages 
are is is the testimony of Jesus that as is, as it is represented in in Revelation chapter three, and Ellen White understood this as well. If you read from manuscript releases one page three forty forty nine, it says testimonies had been given correcting and counseling the church, and many had made practical application of the message to the Laodicean church. She speaks of her own testimonies here. And were confessing their sins and repenting in contrition of soul. They were hearing the voice of Jesus, the heavenly merchant. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. She quotes that verse. Uh, I, I really like this um, quote from Testimonies 5, page 682. God has given sufficient evidence so that all who desire to do so may satisfy themselves as to the character of the testimonies and have acknowledged them to be from God. It is their duty to accept reproof, <clears throat> even though they do not themselves see the sinfulness of their course. If they fully realize their condition, what would be the need of reproof? Interesting, huh? You know, many times we say, oh, that's not applicable. When I, one of the most humbling things to do was when I started reading testimonies for the church. And it's, it is challenging because it goes to the very core of, of uh, practical things. And it, it really tests how willing am I, how, how, surrend, how, how surrendered am I really to, uh, to God? Am I willing to go all the way for Him? And... Uh, of course, when I read it, I think, oh, this is for somebody else, right? Oh, some, this, this person really needs to hear this one. But am I willing to see that it actually can apply to me? Uh, not everything might. And, and, and we, we'll talk about that later. Some, if we apply it to the wrong kind of situations, we get a, a, a distorted picture. But we need to be open to the Spirit's leading and not be hardening ourselves to it. I would say almost... Almost a hundred percent. Okay, I, I have no research to back that up, but uh, uh, so many of the critics that accuse Ellen White that left the church and and started uh, attacking um, Ellen White, writing these web pages and all these things. They uh, and uh, it's not a hundred percent of the people that left the church. That's not what I'm saying. But a hundred percent of the people that actually go start attacking, they have once been reproved for example take canwright uh, dm canwright he he was a minister and there was something that ellen white wrote to him that he did not feel was justified he got upset about it and that led him to leave the church and write and, and start attacking uh, the gift of prophecy and that adventism and so many examples could be given of that uh, just we have these uh, Oh, I forgot to translate Proverbs 29.18. It says, Proverbs 29.18 says, Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Second Chronicles 20.20 says, Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. God has promised us, he wants us to prosper. He wants us to, to be the head and not the tail. And actually that's why he's, he's given the message to Laodicea. But to be blunt, or to put it plainly, the message in the testimonies written by Ellen White, not necessarily only the testimonies for the church, but all of her writings, I'm, I'm saying, if we believe that this is actually the prophetic gift from God, uh, her writings are Jesus' personal testimony or ter personal reproof to Laodicea those who reject that message from the spirit of prophecy and do not repent are those who will be vomited out of Jesus' mouth as he's speaking in Laodicea. Uh, and that's somehow being ejected from uh, out, leaving the church. We, we'll get into that later on. But this is quite important if it is so. It, we can't just say that all... 
um, if, if we read her writings, then we can safely reject them. It is not safe to reject the words of a prophet. If Ellen White was in fact a true prophet, which I believe, I'm convinced of, uh, then it is very unsafe to just throw that away and say that, no, I don't want to listen to it, I don't want to follow those things, because it is actually the testimony of Jesus. It's not the prophet, it's not Ellen White we do any harm by saying bad things against her. It is the spirit of prophecy, it is um, the Holy Spirit and Jesus in that sense. Uh, now, how does Satan feel about the spirit of prophecy? Revelation 12, 17, we know how he feels about it. Someone can read that. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, to keep the commandment of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the dragon is Satan, and he's enraged with the woman who has the testimony of Jesus. And... Uh, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, can we see here in this verse that there's, there's going to be an attack on the spirit of prophecy, basically? I mean, we, we see that. And Ellen White confirms this. She says in, in the Testimonies for the Church, volume 4, page 211, It is Satan's plan to weaken the faith of God's people in the testimonies. Next follows skepticism in regard to the vital points of our faith. The pillars of our position... The doubt as to the Holy Scriptures, and then downward, and then the downward march to perdition. When the testimonies which were once believed are doubted and given up, Satan knows the deceived ones will not stop at this, and he redoubles his efforts till he launches them into open rebellion, which becomes incurable and ends in destruction. I've seen many people do this. They've gone from faith and the faith in the spirit of prophecy and the Bible and everything and they start to doubt some things it goes it's a slippery slope it's a slippery slope so do, don't start it select the messages one page 48 the very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God where there's no vision, the people perish. Satan will work ingeniously in different ways and through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony. This is one of Satan's last deceptions, and a sign of the times, I believe, that he is trying to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Now, Satan knows that if he would make an open attack on the Spirit of Prophecy, on the Ellen White, Many people in the Adventist church would say, oh, no, we, we, we somehow believe that Ellen White is a messenger of God. So he wouldn't be so successful when it comes to Adventists, if that was the way he would be working. Most Adventists claim to believe that Ellen White was a prophet, and few would openly deny that they believe that she was a messenger of God. Even some person I, I, was, uh, I met in, in a church, and this person, he gave me all these uh, um, websites. He sent me these websites because I was quite young in the faith. And I was like, oh, really? And, and I was finding out all these things. It was a member of the church that sent it to me. And he said, you should look into this. And, you know, this, this a little bit, there's something to it. And, of course, I, I, had, I was already settled on the question. And I... Uh, told the elders in the church and the elders, they, they investigated into it and they, they talked to this man and said, why did you do that and why did you try to discourage him from reading Ellen White and so on? And then the person said, oh, I believe Ellen White is a prophet. No problem. He didn't do it really, but openly he said he would. He, he did. And so few people would openly deny that she is a prophet, but instead Satan makes efforts to make the testimonies of none effect. And that's a similar thing as we find that the Jews did in, in the time of Jesus. In Mark 7, let's read it. Mark 7, 9 through 13, someone can read it, please. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let them be put to death. But, you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatsoever profit you might have received from his program, that is, the gift of God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, 
making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down and many such things do. Now, did the Jews openly say, don't keep the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are bad? No. no they, didn't. they didn't. But in their policies, they made the Ten Commandments of no effect. Right? This is what the, Satan's last attack will be. It's not just to take away, say, no, stop believing in Ellen White. It is actually saying, yeah, yeah sure, we believe Ellen White, but making them have no effect on us, no change in our hearts. And this is, this is the last deception. Maybe people say that what Ellen White wrote was good in her time, but her messages are not relevant to us. Or, I believe her messages, but I do not believe that they apply to me. Okay? And thereby, the testimonies have been made of no effect. And in, in, in this fact, people, in this way, people are reasoning that I am rich, I am wealthy, I, I don't need anything in one way. Yes? Now we'll get to your question. If a member of SDA Church would say, I don't believe in Ellen White, it would be right to put to the committee board of disfellowship from the church list if the, if the person refused to believe in Ellen White. Or we still compromise and we let the person to remain in the church. Well, that's a good question. Ellen White said, actually, that it's not so that a person, uh, that, that um, accepting her as a prophet is a test of membership when you come in. Uh, she, she clearly states that people that have no, they, they can't have time to be acquainted with everything that Ellen White wrote in, in a short time period. And so, they, before a person is baptized, they need to accept the prophetic gift in the last day. That, the theory that there is supposed to be a prophet, prophet, prophetic gift in the last day church. That's one of our, our fundamental beliefs. But, uh, but when it comes to accepting Ellen White as a true prophet, a person might need more time. But however, if they, after they have studied into it and they've been acquainted with Ellen White for, for a long time, they know uh, her writings and all that, and then they openly say, no, I, I deny uh, that she was a true prophet. If, and if they start doing that, they won't stop there. They won't just say, oh, I believe in the 1844 investigative judgment. I believe in, in all these other doctrines that we have, except for Ellen White. No, it, it's, it's going to go, all of the rest of the things are going to go, basically, or most of the things. Well, the reason I'm asking yeah. It is really true in the church you hear a lot of criticism mm -hmm. of the Ellen White address. And, uh, it is. And sometimes it makes me to be confused. You know, mm. Are we really seven Adventists or not? Mm -hmm. It sounds very strange when you hear from your brethren's criticism to Ellen White. Yeah. So it's really strange. It is. It is. And I, I think it is very sad. And I think that is a sign of Laodicea. Mm -hmm. That this is Laodicea that we are living in. But we, we don't need to be part of that. There is one thing that is one of Satan's most effective ways, weapons, to make the testimony of Jesus of non-effect. And that weapon is fanaticism. It is fanaticism. Or you might say, what? How, how in the world is that true? This is, this is very, very clear. People with extreme views quote Ellen White, left and right, I don't know if you've ever met a person like this, I've met many, they, they come, they take lots of quotes, 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 and they can just put so many quotes so you would drown in them, right? And many people, they are allured by this, they find, oh, wow, this person is really spiritual, they can quote Ellen White so much, I, I, I don't have time to read everything, but I trust that this person really knows what he or she is talking about. And they start following what this person says with extreme views. Now, other people realize that that is a very extreme view. I mean, that person is, is a fanatic. And therefore, they falsely assume that Ellen White also had that extreme view. This is the danger of fanaticism. Fanaticism is not just for those on, on the very right fringe. It's not a danger only for them. It's, it's for all of us. Because 
the reaction against fanaticism is equally dangerous if we if we it's the wrong way can you, can you define this word fanaticism yes it's very complicated for my brain i understand Let, well, let's read on and we'll see a testimonies to minister page 51 and 52 almost my whole lifetime ellen white says has been devoted to this work but my burden has often been made heavier by the arising of men who went forth to proclaim a message that god had not given them this class of evil workers have selected portions of the testimonies and have placed them in the framework of error in, in order by this setting to give the influence of their false testimonies. When it is made manifest that their message is error, then the testimonies brought into the companionship of error share the same condemnation. Are you following? And the people of the world who don't know that the testimonies quoted are extracts from private letters used without my consent present these matters as evidence that my work is not of God or of truth, but falsehood. So this is, this is the thing. Fanatics arise, they take all these things, and then when people look at that and they say, Oh, that's terrible. How can someone have those ideas? And then they say, Oh, we read Ellen White. Oh, Ellen White is a terrible person. You know? See what's happened? Because we don't know. Uh, some don't go this far, but they still make the assumption that if you read Ellen White too closely, you'll end up in fanaticism. And they take a little bit, uh, in, you know, they take a distance against it. Like, okay, yeah, I can read a little bit of Steps to Christ and, and a little bit of The Desi Desire of Ages, but uh, be careful about reading too much of the Great Controversy, because if you read too much into the late chapters there, whoa, you'll, you'll go crazy there. Um, so we'll have a safe distance. We'll have it as a devotional book, you know, a nice and, and comfortable book. But don't read too much of it, you'll be extreme. This is a reaction to fanaticism. There's, there's a justice in that, that people have seen all these fanatics that goes into these things, and they say, I don't want to be like that. And they go, and they go away from it. Uh, what shall we do? God, the Lord has warned us uh, against both extremes. Let's read Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 5, 32 to 33, if someone could read that. Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. Hmm. So the Lord says, don't turn to the right or to the left. You know, there's a straight and narrow road. Seriously, there is a straight and narrow road. Didn't Jesus say that? But on that road, there are two ditches. There's one to the left, there's one to the right. And these two ditches have only one thing in common. Neither of them are on the road. Neither of them are on the road. And those people that are in the right ditch they feel with, with, they rightly feel that it is horrible to be in the left ditch. It, it is. And, but oftentimes they identify the middle with the left ditch. And the people on the left, in the left ditch, they feel, oh, it's terrible over there. Those fanatics out in the right ditch, I, uh, that's terrible. We don't want to go there. But oftentimes they identify the middle with, uh, with the right. So if you want to walk on the straight and narrow road, you're going to be attacked from both sides. That's just a fact. Yeah, there's a quote here from Testimonies for the Church 5, page 305. There is in, hum in human nature a tendency to run to extremes and from one extreme to another entirely opposite. So this is a danger we need to realize. So how can we know what's an extreme and what is not? Uh, let's go on and read here in Luke 24, verse 25 through 27. This is Jesus' solution to this problem. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart in believing all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things, and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures that things concerning himself. Hmm. If you remember what we read in Deuteronomy, it also said the same thing in Deuteronomy 5 there. It says, Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside neither to the right or to the left. So you shall walk in the ways which the Lord has commanded you. So Jesus says, follow all that the prophet has spoken. 
And in Joshua 1, 7, it says the same thing. Only be strong and very, very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. Okay, let me, get, let me bring some practical examples. I, I've been studying, I was studying with, or I, I had a, a good f- friend that came, went into fanaticism. He was studying the book of Daniel, and um, he was saying that this word, if you ever read Daniel 8, it talks about the daily, or the daily sacrifice. Okay? And he said, this understanding, particular understanding of the daily sacrifice, or the daily as he called it, uh, you need to understand it. This is really important. And I was trying to see, well, where is where's Christ and that? How, how does that relate to my personal relationship to Jesus? I couldn't really see it. And I, but anyway, okay, fine. But he was so strong on this point, And he said, if people reject my understanding of um, what the daily means, you will not be saved. You, you, will, you will be grieving the Spirit of God and, and, and you, will be, uh, you will be lost. This person told me this. And... Um, Quoted Ellen White to support him. Okay. Uh, now, did she, did she ever say something like that? Absolutely not. Uh, on the other hand, I quoted to him some very clear uh, quotes about exactly that point. And this is from Selected Messages 1, page 167. Ellen White says, I have words to speak to all who have been active in urging their views in regard to the meaning of the daily of Daniel 8. And then she says, this is not to be made a test question. Okay, is that clear enough for you? So is the daily in Daniel 8 a test question? No, it is not, according to Ellen White. But this person was still claiming to believe in Ellen White, so 100%, and was saying that I was compromising my beliefs in Ellen White because I didn't accept his idea of what the daily meant. Now that is fanaticism, but you see what he's doing. He's doing exactly the same thing that the compromisers are doing. He's following one part of the testimonies, but not all of it. And this is my point. Fanaticism and criticizers, they have the same problem. They don't want to follow all that the prophet has spoken. Because I believe if you follow all that the prophet has spoken, you will be balanced you will have a correct understanding because God is balanced. Another example, I met a man that I talked with and he was claiming very strongly that you, if you've, if you've married an unbeliever, you need to have a divorce. He was, he was teaching these things. And he said, yes, the Bible forbids marriage to unbelievers. And that is, that is somewhat, that is true. I mean, the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked. And he was quoting these things and he says, therefore, if you're married an unbeliever, you need to be divorced. And that was extreme. Some people, uh, they actually follow this person and said, yeah, that's what I need to do. Um, but we, there are other passages in the Bible that talks about if, if uh, an unbeliever is willing to live with you, you are not allowed to divorce that person. So I quoted these things, they said, no, that, that doesn't apply to, to this situation. That only applies to if, if they were believers from before, you know, they made an exception for, for that particular Bible verse. And they quoted Ellen White, and where Ellen White even says very strong things like, uh, it is forbidden, you know, uh, to, to, for, for a young person to marry an unbeliever. These kinds of really strong statements that they dug out. Well, I read to them from Adventist Home, um, no, this is from my own notes. Adventist home, page 351, talks about someone who married an, a, a godless youth. And it says, her marriage was a deception of the devil. Yet now she should make the best of it. Treat her husband with tenderness. Make him as happy as she can without violating her conscience. For if he remains in his rebellion, this world is all the heaven he will have. I read this page 351. That's Adventist home. Oh, this world is all the heaven he will have. Yeah. If he remains in this rebellion. So, 
Ellen White clearly says one thing if we really just read all that she has written on it. If we just take one thing out of context, yes, we can build, we can do like the same with the Bible, can't we? We can do exactly the same thing with the Bible. We can distort it and we can get all kind of fanatic ideas. But if we actually believed all that the Prophet has spoken, we will not go astray. You know, yes. Uh, I read uh, what she said, uh, what she uh, has written about uh, women's clothes, for instance. Mm. She says, um, you should not be among the last to leave an old fashion. Mm. And you should not be among the first to start with a new fashion. That's I right. think that's excellent, isn't it? It is. You shouldn't go around so people look at you, oh, what a old-fashioned uh, person. And you should not be among the first mm. to have a new uh, look. The thing about, about dress, I, I have not studied it completely to my uh, satisfaction, but I've read, I've read quite extens some quite extensively about it. And the principles in, in, in Ellen White's writings is... She, she clearly says that it's not... Uh, she, she made the, the talk about the reform dress. She says it's not a test question, um, very clearly. And if you read her writings in, in later on, she talks about uh, modesty. She talks about health. She talks about um, simplicity in dress and neatness. It's one of the things also. Don't, don't dress in, in rags and, and ugly clothes. Uh, these four principles I've found, and, and I think that's the core of what Ellen White talks about in, when it comes to, to dress reform. Uh, if you read all of it, I think you'll get a balanced picture. If you just take a few snippets here and there, uh, that, that will be a problem. We don't have time to go through many of these things, but... Um, there are just so many uh, examples I, I could tell you. There was one person that, th that was so convinced that, oh, the Sabbath begins at dawn, not at sundown. And, and he, had, he made oh, lots of, of different uh, gymnastics in, in the Bible to show that. And he even believed Ellen White was supporting it. Okay? I read some quotes from him. That actually, it's from sundown, and where Ellen White clearly says that it's from sundown to sundown. And... He was like, well, that was before she got, uh, uh, you know, a prophet uh, learns more things, you know. And so maybe the, the old things that she read there later on, she, she, she what might have changed her mind if she lived today, you know. You can get all kinds of rationalization if you really want something to be that, the case. And so this is, this is the problem with both fanaticism and with compromise. They have the same problem. And this is my... This is my experience. Uh, we don't have time to read all these uh, quotes, but Ellen White clearly speaks on these things that we need to read her testimonies in order. Select the messages one, page 44. Letters come to me entreating an answer. I know that many men take the testimonies the Lord has given and apply them as they suppose they should be applied, picking out a sentence here and there taking it from its proper connection and applying it according to their idea. Thus, poor souls will, be, will become bewildered when could they read in order all that has been given, they would see the true application and would not become confused. Much that purports to be a message from Sister White serves the purpose of misrepresenting Sister White, making her testify in favor of things that are not in accordance with her mind. Let's... Yes. To the church, is, to the church, is it like a complete whole book in the Ellen T. White times, or it was selected after her death? It is. It came out during her times. So first, it was the volume one. First, it was only she. She wrote personal testimonies to people, and then they started collecting these, and they took away the names. That's why you have Brother B, Brother C, and so on. Um, and then they started compiling it together. I'm printing it and sending it around. So sometimes when you read in testimony, she says, "Oh, as I as I read in, uh, or as I wrote in in the previous testimonies, there, uh, you you go and read that." And w the reason why she published these things was so that other people could identify with a similar experience and take uh, and learn from 
those things as well. One thing I want to say before we end here is, or the question is, how much is inspired? I, I want I want to read some of these quotes from for you before I end. Do we have it? Here? Yes, you have it there in uh, letter F. Letter F there in the second the second heading, yeah. Philip. So it says there, both the compromisers and the fanatics have the same problem at heart. They choose to believe some parts of the testimonies which happen to agree with their ideas, while that which does not suit their mind, they discard. They might say Ellen White is inspired by God, but sometimes she puts forth her own opinion. Uh, therefore, not everything is inspired. And thereby they set themselves up as judges over what is inspired by God and what is not. This is the danger. Now, if we start saying, oh, some parts are inspired, she's like half inspired, like 50%. Okay, who am I to decide which parts that are inspired and which are not? Can I do that? Oh, that thing about, about, uh, that she says about food, I don't, I don't like that one. Uh, but I, I really like the things she says on education. You know, Is that how we should do it? Or, or maybe I'm a fanatic and I say, yes, this thing about food, that's what I do. But then when she says, don't be a fanatic, no, that's not inspired. You know? Uh, we, how, who are we to judge? I, it's going to be different for, for each person if we just say that, oh, some parts are inspired and some are not. Ellen White said this, Do not by your criticism take out all the force, all the point of, and power from the testimonies. Do not feel that you can dissect them to suit your own ideas, claiming that God has given you ability to discern what is light from heaven and what is expression of mere human wisdom. If the testimonies speak not according to the word of God, reject them. And she says, in the letters which I write and the testimonies I bear, I bear, I am presenting to you that which the Lord has presented to me. I do not write one article in the paper expressing merely my own ideas. They are what God has opened before me in vision, precious rays of light shining from the throne. And, uh, yeah. We won't go into any more, but let me read one more paragraph from the White Estate compilers, how, how they viewed things, on letter G, number two. It's from Selected Messages, and she says that, thank you, except for that which is in the nature of everyday matters or biographical, that which Mrs. White set before the people was based upon the visions given, her, given to her whether or not she used the term I saw, she in her day, and we today, draw the line not between books and letters, etc., but between the sacred and the common. No one need be confused. So, Ellen White, of course, when she writes her shopping list, that's not an inspired shopping list. Oh, the prophet's shopping list, you know? No. It's not inspired by God in that sense. But when she writes on the sacred things, when she writes about spiritual matters, this is not her own opinions. Of course, she had the free will. She could have expressed her own opinions. But if she did it in, in opposition to what God wanted, then God would correct it, just like he did with Nathan, remember? The prophet Nathan. Uh, he, he corrected him. Uh, so God would, would do that. But... Uh, as long as she stayed faithful, we can trust that all that the prophet has written, if we follow it, we will find a balanced view of uh, Ellen White and the Spirit of Prophecy. So this is, it's my challenge to us that we will not just read some part of it, but that we will actually try to get a big picture of what she's saying. If someone comes and bashes you in the head with an Ellen White quote, says, where is that written? Can I see the context? And then you start searching on the, on the White Estate website for all of, all of those things. Search for the word and see all the hits. And you read it and you see, is that actually a balanced view that this person was telling me? Or is there more to it? And that's my challenge to all of us. And I believe that we can have, uh, we will prosper. That's what God said. Believe in the prophets and we will prosper. How many of you would like to prosper? Can I see your hands? <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> you know what to do. May the Lord bless you. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the prophetic gift, and I pray that we may, may be established, that you will rightly interpret these things to our hearts so that we may not be led astray. Help us to, to know how to read 
the writings of your prophets so that we may be uh, faithful to you. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.